Well, good morning. I would reiterate this invitation. Uh, Brenda and I are going to do Boost. Brian and Cindy are going to do Boost. And uh, I think 25 couples are signed up so far. And so you might consider joining us. It's, uh, I think it's going to be a rich time. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand as I read today's passage. I'll be teaching from 1 John 3, verses 19 through 25. John writes this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is God's word. Please be seated. If you've been at faith very long, you might have remembered me mentioning Dave Simmons. He was a mentor of mine in my 20s. Dave founded the camp where Brenda and I met and where we worked for three years after, after college. Probably the defining thing about Dave's life is that his dad was a hard, demanding man. When Dave was just a kid, uh, Dave's dad was actually uh, stationed at Fort Riley. This was in the 1940s. And one Christmas, uh, his dad gave him a bicycle, and he said, you can ride this bicycle if you can put it together. And Dave couldn't even read. And so he tried and tried, and finally he got so frustrated that he just collapsed in tears on the floor. His dad's response, get away, stupid. I knew you couldn't do it. And so his nickname for Dave growing up was Stoop, which is short for stupid. Not surprisingly, when Dave got old enough, he rebelled and he disrespected his dad Every, every chance he got. And probably the, the crowning disrespect was when Dave decided where to go to college. He had full-ride scholarships to play football at his dad's two favorite universities, LSU and West Point. So where did Dave go to college? He went to Georgia Tech because it was 1,500 miles away from his dad in Atlanta, Georgia. When I knew Dave, Uh, Dave had been an All-American linebacker at Georgia Tech. He played pro football for the Cowboys, the Cardinals, St. Louis Cardinals, and the New Orleans Saints. He was successful building a camp, a youth camp from the ground up. He had written books. He had spoken to crowds all around the world, but Dave still thought of himself as stupid. His dad's voice rang in his head. And so as a kid... Dave did not feel safe in his family because it wasn't safe. Dave didn't feel loved because, in many ways, he wasn't loved. And that lack of love, lack of security, lack of feeling wanted haunted him his entire life. That scenario is rather common. I might be describing you or someone that you know. But there's another scenario that that explains why other kids don't feel loved and secure and wanted in their homes. 
And it's this, and I might be describing some of you. I know, I know moms and dads who are phenomenal parents. I mean, they're fantastic. They're not perfect, but they sacrifice for their kids. They pour out their lives for their kids. They love their kids. They try to shepherd their kids. But their kids are the ones that don't want the relationship with mom and dad. And I don't understand it, but for whatever reason, the kids have this perception, my parents are oppressive. My parents are harsh and demanding. They're the ones that don't want me. And so because of that perception of their parents, that false perception of their parents, the kids don't feel safe and secure and welcomed in their own home. That's what keeps them from experiencing love and security. Here's the point. In the household of God, if you and I ever don't feel wanted and loved and accepted, it's always the second scenario. It is never the case that God is so harsh and demanding that you can't feel safe. It's always a false perception on our part. Everything we're told about God in the scriptures is that God is a fantastic father. He loves us in in ways beyond we can fathom. He wants to shepherd us through this life. He wants us to feel safe and wanted and secure. He showers us with good gifts. He reassures us that we're wanted. And that reality sets the context for the passage we're going to look at today. Today's passage, John wants us to know that if we're believers in Jesus, that we should experience this security and in in this confidence before God. Let me remind you of the, the, the uh, overarching reason why John wrote this letter. In 1 John 5, 13, John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John says, if you're a believer, I'm writing to you these things so that you might have this confidence, so you might know that you have eternal life. And when you read through 1 John, and we're encouraging you to read it once a week, if you will, uh, during this series, you'll see that, that John describes those who have eternal life using many different terms. He speaks of us as knowing Jesus Christ, being in Christ, being in the light, knowing God the Father, becoming children of God, being born of God, being from God, and as we'll see in today's passage, being of the truth. If you're a believer in Jesus, God wants you to know that you're wanted and loved and secure in his family. And today's passage explains that such assurance is the byproduct of what we believe and how we behave. Let's see how John develops this truth. We begin in verse 19 through 21. And our love reassures our hearts that we know God. John says that our love for one another gives us reassurance in our hearts that we know God. The premise behind verse 19 is that the new birth is so miraculous that it actually changes us. We don't just get a new label, Christian. No, we are actually, it's a miraculous thing that happens when you put your faith in Jesus that your life has changed, and it was inconceivable to the New Testament authors that we would be born of God, born from above, and it would not affect our behavior. And so in verse 19, John writes, by this we shall know that we are of the truth 
and reassure our hearts before him. By this refers to what is described in the previous paragraph about loving one another, not merely in words, but with actions and in truth. And uh, if our love for one another is expressed in action and truth, we know that we are of the truth. We know that we belong to Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. And as we've seen throughout 1 John, John is very nuanced in the way he puts it. He's very careful uh, to make sure that, that we don't get the impression that it's our love for one another that is the basis of our salvation. No, it's the evidence of our salvation uh, that, that we know God. Our love does not earn us a place in God's family. Rather, it's the evidence that we have been saved. It demonstrates that God has made us his children. We have the family resemblance. God is love, and those that know God also love one another. And when we love one another in deed and truth, John says, we also reassure our hearts before him, before God. Bring to mind mind a time when you poured out your love. You were just moved to compassion. You just couldn't not love somebody. You just had to show it to somebody. When that happens, chances are your heart breathed this sigh of relief. Ah, yes, the reason I loved is because I've been loved. I don't love first. God's the one that loved me first. It changed my heart, and now I, I move toward other people with love because of what he's done in my life. And so when we love each other the way Christ has loved us, we experience this internal confirmation that we know him. I love the way Brian put it last week. He says, love, he said, love proves that we have life. Love proves that we have life. In verses 20 through 22, John addresses a couple conditions of the heart in relation to our assurance of salvation. And so he first talks about when our hearts condemn us, and then he talks about when our hearts do not condemn us. First of all, in verse 20, when our heart condemns us, Here John acknowledges that our love for one another is imperfect and our hearts are not always reassured. Sometimes our hearts condemn us and make us question whether or not we have eternal life. He says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The context helps us understand what John's saying when he says, when our hearts condemn us. In the next couple verses, as we'll see, he talks about when our hearts do not condemn us. Why? Because we have loved one another well, because we've been obedient to the love command. So here, when John talks about our hearts condemning us, we can safely conclude it's because we haven't loved well. We have loved imperfectly. We've been disobedient or partially obedient to the love command. And when we're spiritually healthy... When our love is deficient, which it always is, when our love is deficient, uh, the Spirit convicts us and we're humbled and we bow the knee to God, we apologize, and God gives us this, this new, fresh cleaning, this fresh sense of forgiveness. When we're not so healthy, our hearts are not so kind. Our hearts don't merely convict us, they condemn us and this, hurl these accusations at us. Say, the see way you've loved, you didn't love that person? How can you say you even know God? How can you pretend that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? You're, you don't love, you'll never love, you're a fake. 
And when that happens, John wants us to remember two things. First of all, this is good news, okay? This is not bad news. This is good news. God is greater than our heart, okay? So what that means is that our hearts are not sovereign. Our hearts are not infallible. Our hearts get it wrong many times. Many times we find that we are troubled and anxious for no good reason. We have this anxiety. Our hearts are troubled. We go through some experience and we look back and we say, what was I thinking? Why, why was my heart so troubled? God had this. And so sometimes our hearts get it wrong. And uh, uh, our, hearts, our hearts are not infallible. But God is greater than our hearts. He is sovereign. He is infallible in everything he thinks and does. And second, John mentions that he knows everything, meaning that he knows our relationship with him better than we do. Um, in 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul wrote, The Lord knows those who are his. We often have to guess, but the Lord knows those who are his. And uh, therefore, when our hearts condemn us, we trust in God's mercy and grace instead of wallowing in self-condemnation. Here's a passage for extra credit, okay, if any of you want extra credit. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, Paul has this brilliant passage. He says, basically, uh, just because somebody accuses us of something doesn't mean we're guilty. And just because my, my conscience is clean doesn't mean I'm innocent, okay? He said, God's the only one that knows the truth. So let's quit judging one another ahead of time. Let's wait for Jesus. He's going to come. God, who knows everything, he'll just expose everybody's hearts. Wait till that day. So it's, it's just a brilliant, brilliant passage. When our hearts condemn us, in verses 21 and 22, when our heart does not condemn us, here John loops back to when our hearts reassure us before God. He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And so when we've loved one another well, our hearts reassure us and we have this confidence before God. Our hearts do not condemn us. We're reassured and confident before God. And that's a deep abiding sense that we are loved and wanted and accepted by God himself. Specifically, John mentions this confidence in relation to prayer. In verse 22, he says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I don't know if you've noticed this, but throughout the Bible, prayer is conditional. Okay, There are conditions that have to be met before God says, yes, I will give you what you want. We'll see in chapter 5, we have to pray according to his will. If we ask God for something he does not want us to have or he doesn't want to do, he's like, no, you're not my boss. But if we ask according to his will, of course, yeah, he'll give it to us. And here the condition that John mentions is keeping his commandments and doing what pleases him. And he'll explain in the next verse, what he means by keeping his commandments. He's talking about uh, believing and loving. But we need to think relationally about prayer. Think about God is a person. He's a personal God. And so we relate to him as a personal God instead of thinking about it transactionally. So when we pray, when we're bringing petitions before God, we are asking our Heavenly Father for a favor. We're not engaging in some transaction. Okay, God, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that. Deal? God doesn't make deals. We ask him, and he either says yes or no. 
And the Bible itself talks about prayer in very relational terms. Uh, here's an example. This, this, just, this, this verse slays me, actually. It's 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter says to husbands, if your wife is a believer, he says, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And so Peter is uh, reminding believing husbands, if you have a believing wife, she, just like you, is an heir, meaning she will inherit eternal life. She will inherit everything Jesus has secured by his death and resurrection. Unfathomable blessing and glory uh, uh, on the day that Jesus returns. He says, so you need to treat your wife, you need to honor her in light of who she is and what she will inherit. And so think about her as, think about, God says, think about me as your father-in-law so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so you don't have to get married, but if you do get married and your wife is a believer, your relationship with God will forever be linked to how you treat her. So I've got two son-in-laws, and if they would happen to mistreat my daughters, and they don't, they're, they're, they're great guys. But if they did, if they were mistreating my daughters, and they came to me with some request, I would say, you know what, before we talk about that, we need to talk about how you've been treating my daughter, okay? That's just relationally the way it works. Conversely, if they're honoring my daughters, man, I would do almost anything for them, anything they wanted. And so think about prayer relationally. That's, that's the way it is with our Heavenly Father. When it comes to confidence before God and confidence in prayer, this relational dynamic is at play. And so when we keep His commands, imperfectly, of course, we keep His commands. When we don't, we get back into the light, we confess our sin. But when we're in this, this rhythm of walking with God, our lives are aligned with His. We want what He wants. Our food is to do His will. And that shapes the things we pray for, the things we ask, and how we ask it. And God says, absolutely, you have what you're asking. And it's more, I know it's more complicated than that. We don't understand everything about prayer. Um, but we'll talk about that more in chapter 5. I'm not promising I got it figured out, but we'll, we'll talk about it. But the basic idea is, yeah, we're walking with God, our prayer life. It's a, it's a different thing than when we're just making random requests to someone we don't really know or like or walk with. And so our love for one another reassures our hearts that we know God and it confirms that we are loved and wanted. It shows up in our lives. In verses 23 and 24, uh, John says, our love and our faith go hand in hand. Uh, in, a, in, a, in biblical Christianity, you don't have uh, belief, uh, you don't have faith and love uh, faith and love always go together. And so in verse 23, John makes clear what he speaks about when he says keeping his commands in verse 22. He has in mind two things. There's a doctrinal test and a moral test. He says, and this is his commandment. This is it. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. So the first command is believing in the name of of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, the name signifies everything someone is and does. And so if you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you have this deep confidence in everything the Bible says Jesus is and does. And so in 1 John, John says, Jesus is the one who became one of us. We touched him, we saw him, we heard him. 
He came in the flesh, identifying with humanity to die for the sins of humanity. And so he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Chapter 5, we're told that he is God himself. And so when you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you have confidence in him and him in a very comprehensive sense. Believing comes first. And then behavior comes second. He says, and love one another just as Jesus commanded us. As we saw last week, that means laying down our lives for one another in tangible, sacrificial ways. And so loving one another isn't merely having warm thoughts about one another. Um, it doesn't mean saying, I love you. That's, that's great, but it's not just saying, I love you. And some people say, yeah, I love you. I just never show it. I'm like, well, maybe that's not love, okay? And so love is action. Love is, is sacrificial. It shows up in deeds. In verse 24, John returns to the issue of knowing, assurance that we're rightly related to God. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so as we believe in love, we experience this mutual abiding with God. We have the sense, yeah, God abides with me and I'm actually abiding in him. And we have this, this sense of this closeness that we would not otherwise have if we weren't pleasing God. And again, that's just the way relationships work. If you're, if you're disrespecting someone, if you're not moving towards someone, yeah, you're not going to have this sense of remaining with each other. And then in the second sentence, John, in verse 24, John used the same expression he used back in verse 19, by this we know, meaning this is how we have, know we have assurance before God, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so when you put it all together, everything we've been talking about, it's as we walk in faith, we believe in Jesus, and as we walk in love, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us this assurance, yes, you belong to God. You abide in him, he abides in us. The Spirit whispers to us, yes. Abba is your father. In uh, Romans 8, 16, Paul wrote that the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit reassures our hearts and give us, gives us confidence before God. We're going to turn to the Lord's table now, and I want us to do so in the context of this passage, this teaching. And so I would ask you here today, how is your heart? Does your heart condemn you or does your heart not condemn you? Is your heart reassured before God as you look at your faith, as you look at your love? Or does your heart not reassure you? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, again, God wants you to know that you know him. He wants you to have security. He wants you to feel safe in his presence. He wants you to know that you are wanted and loved far beyond anything you can fathom. And so invite the Holy Spirit to give you that assurance here today and day by day by day. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that there are no entrance requirements other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Put your full confidence in him. Believe that he died for your sins he is very willing to say to you, 
I'm never going to hold those sins against you. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. God will welcome you into his family. Let's bow our heads. Let's take a couple of, of minutes just to be quiet before God. And uh, just bring these matters before God. The bread and the cup remind us that Jesus paid the infinite price of dying for our sins. And surely if, if God gave us his son, surely he wants us to have the assurance that we are his. And so talk with God about these things and then we'll eat and drink together. The night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus took the cup. He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the body and blood of Christ. Thank you for the assurance that the Spirit himself gives us that we belong to you. We ask God that we would walk through this week with a newfound freedom, that we would just anticipate you confirming over and over again that we belong to you. And as we walk in love, as we walk in truth and faith, we pray, God, that we would find great joy this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.